In our culture, ladies understand the deep significance of the wedding ceremony more than the men. Given a choice to go fishing, work on the yard, or attend a wedding, most men choose either the first two alternatives. Why all this fuss anyway about invitations, pretty dresses, countless flowers, nervous bridegrooms, and a bride in a white dress? Let's join our study leader, Dave Wurtson, as he makes some observations on the difference between men and women and the significance of weddings. The wives and the women tend to get a lot more excited about this thing of bridesmaids that have to get all color coordinated and get all the dresses just right, make sure all the flowers are just right. As I do premarital counseling, most of the bridegrooms are just sitting there going, you know, I learned a long time ago, just keep my mouth shut and just let the mother of the bride and the bride do their thing and it'll all work out. You know, if I had my druthers, we'd just kind of do it quickly and the pastor's study and get on with it. There just seems to be a radical dichotomy between the way men feel about this and the way the women feel about it. The men, if they were given a choice either to go fishing on that day or maybe to stay home with the kids or to go to the wedding, I think many husbands opt, I'll stay home even with the kids and take care of them. Maybe not quite that far. What I want us to consider today is that there was a time when entire communities would come out to see couples united together in marriage. If you were in a Jewish culture, the entire extended family would come. You would probably go to a hotel. You'd have a great big feast, a great big banquet. It would be a time of tremendous celebration. And it would be a time of expressing our solidarity with this couple. And as the bride comes down the aisle in all of her white glory, there's a reason why the girls in the audience think that moment is very, very special. There's a reason why the husbands, I've been teasing a little bit, but as I am in the room to the side before we come out, the husbands for the rest of their life might escape from going to weddings. But I want to share with you, because you girls usually don't have the opportunity of being with that bridegroom before they come out, but their clammy hands, their nervousness, some of them that are perfectionistic, their attention to details going over with me, are you sure you can handle this? Are you sure it will work out? And I'm sitting there, hey, I don't even know how many times I've done this. You know, it will work out. You can't blow it because you don't really even have to memorize anything hardly. I'll give you everything you need to say. Just concentrate on the meaning of it. I guarantee you that the husbands in this audience, deep in their heart, their nervousness that their own wedding betrays, that all of us in this audience understand that something very profound is taking place as a young man waits in front of the church and a bride in white glory walks forward to be united in marriage. In our marriages, there's something going on that has cosmic, universal meaning. And that's what we want to look in today. I want to share with you some differences in the customs of marriages in the first century and the customs that we observe in our own culture. In the culture when Jesus was living in the first century, the Jewish people did not have an engagement period. Like in our culture, a young man and woman will pledge themselves to each other. The man gives his fiancée a beautiful diamond ring usually. 
And then we have a period of maybe six months, a year, or maybe even a few weeks in which they're engaged. Now, if that couple were to break the engagement, and all of us can think of friends that we've known that were engaged, and we went through that great time of rejoicing where the, the, the woman is all excited and the men is all excited. We've all seen that come to a crashing halt, and maybe even a few days before the wedding, a terrible, embarrassing thing has to happen. They send out word that the wedding's not going to take place. That's difficult. But it's not a divorce. It's not a divorce. And that brings out some of the difference in perspective on this idea of betrothal. You see, in the first century, if a man wanted to marry a young woman, he would go to the woman's dad, and he would ask the hand of that woman. Sometimes the, the woman's dad would arrange things with the family, though I don't think it should think that it's too impersonal. Because, like, for example, when um, the wife of Isaac, when Rebecca was, was going to be married to Isaac, even though she hadn't seen him yet, her dad did ask, and her brothers did ask, Rebecca, do you want to go with this man? So even under the custom where the parents would arrange the wedding, I don't think we should think of kind of a brutal, non-personal kind of involvement. Sometimes it was, but I think in a godly family, there was very much a concern to have the couple's ideas about this impending union. But what would happen is the young man would go to the father and would arrange, and, or his father would go with him, and they would arrange this betrothal. He would pay a wedding price, a bride price. And what it was, it was an expression of his love for his bride. And he would give a substantial gift to the bride's father. Now, we shouldn't think of it like a purchase, like a buying and selling because the bride's father on the wedding day would also give a substantial gift to his daughter. And so it's not like we have the husband-to-be as buying this woman. It's really the expression of his heart in saying, this is how much this woman is worth to me. This is the gift that I give, and I want to express how precious she is. So the bridegroom, the potential bridegroom, gives this gift to his father-in-law and to his father-in-law's family. Then the couple is officially recognized as betrothed. And that would mean that in a legal sense, they were married. For example, in the story of Mary and Joseph, we've all learned the story from the time we were small. And when Joseph was betrothed to Mary, when Mary was betrothed to Joseph, she was found to be with child. And there we have the agony of Joseph's heart, because from a legal Jewish standpoint, it wasn't just like a fiancé who had an affair or something and committed fornication. It was like a married wife who committed adultery. And we have the godliness of Joseph's heart where he says, I don't want to hurt her publicly, but I'm a righteous man. I can't enter into a marriage where there's been adultery, so I will put her away privately. We all remember that part of the Christmas story. I think many times we lose the agony of Joseph's heart and I think we have the tremendous compassion of God as an angel comes to Joseph in a dream and explains to him that a miracle has taken place. It's something he could have never even imagined in his wildest dreams had taken place. And that Mary was not immoral at all, just the opposite, but that a very holy, sacred thing had happened. But Mary and Joseph illustrate to us just how important this betrothal period was. It was legally binding a young man and woman together as a married couple. Several months would go by. Sometimes several years would go by because sometimes these betrothals would be made early in adolescence. 
Then the time for the consummation of the wedding would come. The bridegroom would get all of his buddies, all of his friends, all of his extended families, and they would go through the streets. It would be like if it was here in Midlothian, they would get in a big car caravan, probably, preferably, if it was in the spring of the year, some convertibles where they could make a lot of noise and they would blow trumpets and they'd get the Midlothian band to play. And they would go through the town announcing that they were going to the home of the bride. They would arrive outside the home of the bride and they would sing to her and they would, they would invite her to come with them. Then we doubled the procession. The bride and all of her family and all of their regalia, the bride has made herself ready. She is as beautiful as she can possibly be and she comes out and it's kind of like having a great big parade and she is the center of that parade. And they go through the streets again, inviting all the town to come and they go to the house of the bridegroom. And at the house of the bridegroom, there is a great feast. They do not believe in just having a little reception where we have ginger ale mixed with Kool-Aid so it fizzes a little bit with a little bit of sherbet added in and some ice and some sandwiches. I mean, they put on a whole spread. They have a great big sit-down meal. In fact, if you read some of the Old Testament passages, they would have seven days of this. And all the fathers of girls in the audience and all the, you know, all the, in this case, you know, you can imagine paying the bill for that. I mean, I had a friend that paid the bill in Pennsylvania. It's very customary after the wedding to have a sit-down meal. And Mary and I went back there to do a wedding for a good friend of ours and he had a great big wedding and he had to rent a hotel ballroom and I would hate to pay the bill for that sit-down meal. But that's what they would do in the first century. That's what was happening at the marriage of Canaan of Galilee. They ran out of wine because the feast goes on and on, day after day. That's why Samson, when he was marrying the Philistine girl, there was such an embarrassment because of this seven-day feast. They had seven days to figure out the ritual, the, the riddle that Samson had told them. So you've got the custom, a betrothal period, looking forward to this great marriage feast, and then it right at the culmination of the marriage feast to the cheers of all of the friends, the bridegroom would take his bride into an inner sanctuary and they would consummate the marriage. And if you were Jewish people, you would not be real uptight about sexuality. Because from the time you were little kids, you would know about this tremendous idea of celebrating in marriage. This tremendous idea that the culmination of a wedding feast there would be the shout as the marriage was culminated. If you remember watching Yentl, you remember how they faked it because of the illicit reality of that relationship. But it gave you a little bit of the feel, the celebration of the marriage, the consummation of the marriage. Unless you feel like, well, Dave, let's not talk about things like that. It's Sunday morning church. God in heaven again and again and again in his word uses those realities to talk to us about the ultimate reality. The story that I just described, a betrothal to a beautiful potential bride, a period of relationship where they are betrothed, but the relationship is not consummated, a period of preparation, a period of getting ready, a period of looking forward is the period in our relationship with Christ that we are beginning and living now. Our betrothal began the moment we believed. We are living in the betrothal period 
when Christ our bridegroom comes back for us, we will be caught up to the wedding feast. We will go to his home for the wedding feast. And the Bible uses the idea of the consummation of the marriage as being what brings in the new heaven and the new earth. Now, let's put it all together. Let's put some scriptural guts and meat into that kind of summary that I just presented to you. Let's think about the betrothal. Let's go through the wedding party first of all. I'm not talking about the wedding party. I'm talking about the wedding participants. You got it? The wedding party. When I ask a bride in premarital counseling, now who's in your wedding party? She doesn't tell me what they're going to eat. She tells me who's going to be the attendants, okay? Who's the best man? The best man's very important. John chapter 3, where you have your finger, verse 25. Look at verse 25. The enemies of John and Jesus, the Jewish leaders, are questioning John about a tremendous shift that's taken place in the ministry of John, the ministry of John the Baptist. John started out being the popular prophet. Now Jesus has taken his place. The enemies of John and Jesus are seeking to drive a wedge between the disciples of John and the disciples of Jesus. And they ask John, why is your ministry going downhill? The reporter from the Dallas Morning News comes to John and says, listen, you used to have the big moving church in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Now, that's not literally true. You just understand that I just kind of made it contemporary. But they were trying to get this idea of why is John's ministry going down. Now, that's a tough one for a person involved in the ministry. Look at the marvelous way that John responds. Because they came to John they said to him, Rabbi, or exalted teacher, the master, the great doctor, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, notice that man that was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. Now, notice what they're trying to get out of him. Look what he says. To this, John replied, A man can only receive what is given him from heaven. Amen. Praise the Lord that all of us can only receive. We can only give out. We only have the gift that's been given us from heaven. And that's the deliverance from all kinds of jealousy and pride and egotism. You yourselves can testify that I said I'm not the Christ. I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. The joy is mine. It is now complete. He must become greater and I must become the least. What a testimony. What is John saying? John knew the place of every man and woman of God. He knew the place of everyone that's seeking to bring people to the Savior he realizes that their place is like the best man or like the usher at a wedding. I have yet to do a wedding where, as we often in a wedding ceremony, you begin, you begin down here, and then you, on the bottom floor, that's to get rid of the father. The father is down the lower level, okay? Then you get up, you, you start going up, and you usually end up high. And usually they try to get up me higher because I'm so short, nobody can see me, okay? So I get up a little bit higher on a step, but the central attention, in fact, now in a lot of weddings we do, I come out in front and get down low so everyone can see the bride and groom. Now, the best man stands over here. The maid of honor stands over there. Now, there's a reason for that. You see, i got to be able to get the ring from them so they can't be way down the floor where it would take several moments of intense pressure to make that transaction. 
but they can't be too much in the center because the focus is on the bridegroom and the bride. They are the center of attention. The spotlight's on them. Now, I have yet to do a wedding. I have yet to do a wedding where right in the middle of the vows, will you have this man to be your lawfully wedded husband? I have yet to have a, a best man say, now, wait a minute. You're not giving me any attention here. Man alive. I've got a nice brand new 60 tuxedo on. It cost a lot of money. You haven't let me do my thing. I'm going to sing a solo. How many of you have ever been to a wedding where the best man, right in the middle of the vows, stepped out and said, hey, what about me? Well, we all laugh. That's ridiculous. No best man's going to do that. His job is to point everything to the bride and the bridegroom. That's what John is saying. That's what John is saying. So who's the bridegroom? Obviously, the bridegroom is Jesus. Who's the best man? John the Baptist. Let's look at another man of God who had that perspective. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. 2 Corinthians 11, 2. Another best man. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2. The Apostle Paul knew the message of, the God of, John, of John the Baptist because he picked up on the same imagery. Look at verse 2 of 2 Corinthians. I'm jealous for you. Now, there's an evil jealousy that would have been the jealousy that John the Baptist would have had over Jesus' popularity and his loss of it. But there's also a holy jealousy. Mary is jealous of me. She's jealous of my time. She's jealous of my devotion. If I'm very kind and gentle in a counseling session with one of you and I walk into the house and I'm very cold and indifferent, she is very jealous. With a righteous, holy, heated jealousy. Because there's an exclusiveness in our relationship. And that's something you see in English. We don't often think these things through. And it's a very subtle difference. Like a husband can be jealous of his wife, and it can be a very evil thing. He doesn't even let her go out with some of the girls. He never even lets her go shopping. Because really, he's, he's so jealous, he's fearful. He doesn't trust her. Now, that's, a, that's an evil thing. But the word jealous that Paul is using here, and it's the same word, but it has a totally different feel. It means that he covets an exclusive, pure, fully devoted relationship for this woman with this man. He says, I'm jealous for you, Corinthians, with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, and that husband is Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived at the very beginning of the marriage ceremony in Genesis chapter 2, the very beginning of time, in Genesis 3, Eve fell. I'm just as concerned that just as Eve fell by the cunning of the evil one, your mind somehow will be led away from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. There's another best man. The best man who loves believers. What a command to elders. What a command to pastor teachers. As I am teaching you this morning, I am teaching the betrothed bride of Christ. Jesus Christ says you are the apple of his eye. You are the center of his love. And the goal that the Apostle Paul had is to protect you 
to keep you from being deceived, to keep you from danger, to help you to be pure. What a task. But you know, Ephesians chapter 5, 27 says that Jesus will present her to himself. The thing I love about Jesus is that ultimately he doesn't need any of our help because he's strong enough to do it himself. Paul could only be the best man because of Christ within him. John the Baptist could only be the best man because of the Spirit of God that was mightily upon him. Ultimately, Jesus, because of his grace, works in any of our life and causes you and I to become the pure, devoted virgin of Christ, the bride of Christ. So the best man, John the Baptist, Paul, in reality, ultimately, Christ is his own best man. We've learned to the bridegroom is just putting this together with John 3.25 that we just looked at. It's obvious that Jesus is that, that bridegroom. Mark 2.19, Jesus specifically says that he's the bridegroom. It's a passage where the Jewish leaders come to him and say, why don't your disciples fast? And Jesus says, why, while they have the bridegroom with them, why should they fast? There will come a day when the bridegroom is taken away. Then they will fast. So Jesus himself claimed in Mark 2.19 that he was the bridegroom. We learn who the bride is, obviously. It's believers, the church. Ephesians chapter 5. And let's turn there because that will be our central focus. It's the fundamental passage on the church is the bride of Christ. And we learn in Ephesians 5 that the whole pattern of our marriage relationship, as we've talked about in the past, needs to be this analogy. Christ and the church, the husband and his bride. The husband is to model Christ. The more he models Christ, the more of the kind of a husband that he needs to be. The wife needs to model the devotion of the church to their Lord as they model their devotion to their husband. And on and on the analogy goes. Let's think about that. Let's think about the bridegroom's gifts to his bride. Let's look at verse 25 of Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. How many of you have read 1 Corinthians 15? Love acts patiently and is kind. Love suffereth long and is kind. Love doesn't keep a record of things done against it. Love never acts unbecomingly. Love doesn't keep a record of things that are committed against it, in other words. It's forgiving. It's a forgiving love. How many of you have ever gone through those characteristics of love in 1 Corinthians 13 and you've gone, oh my, boy, I didn't see a lot of patience in my life today. I didn't see a lot of kindness in my life today. Boy, I need to, I need to work harder on this. How many of you have ever done that? I'll raise my hand. How many of you are convicted when you read 1 Corinthians 13? Now, I want to share with you an excellent way to read 1 Corinthians 13. And I'm sure you've all done this too. Your bridegroom is patient. Jesus Christ acts patiently and he's kind. Do you believe that today? Do you think Jesus is patient with you? A question I often ask in counseling Picture for me, draw the picture for me in words that you have in your mind of the face of Jesus when I mention your name and I say, Josephine, or Sid, or Jack, and I say their name and say, now give me the first impression. What's the picture of Jesus? I walk into his presence, Jesus, Jack, 
What do you think of? What comes into your mind? And what you picture is very insightful. It gives a lot of what's deep in your personality about how you feel God feels about you. The revealed Word of God says that our bridegroom this morning is patient, which means that he's not uptight with us today. He's not that parent that you can never please. He's not that parent that no matter how many goals you score in soccer, it's never enough. He's the parent that right when you kicked a goal for the other team in the last second of the game and you lost, that comes up in the midst of your tears and he gives you a hug and says, hey, you're really special. Boy, am I glad I'm your daddy. Love is kind. That's what kindness is. And that's the way your bridegroom feels about you. That's his wedding present for you. He gives you the gift of 1 Corinthians 13. And you don't get 1 Corinthians 13 into your life by trying harder like we've often mentioned you don't. You get it by believing that the Savior has given you that gift of His personality. That His wedding present to you is 1 Corinthians 13. That kind of love. He gives you that kind of love. What else does He do? He gives us Himself. He gives us His life and His death. It says He loved us so much, in verse 25, that He gave Himself up for her. Love, perfect love, gives its life for the beloved. Jesus, as your bridegroom, loved you so much that he laid down his life for us. That's why we're here today. People that have a bridegroom that love them so much that he gave his life for them, gather together periodically with other people to believe that, to express gratitude and thanksgiving and adoring of him. Because he gave his life. Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, by depending upon, by trusting in the Son of God, and here it is, who loved me, the gift of 1 Corinthians 13, which expressed itself in giving himself for me. He gave himself up for me. He gave his life for us. You know, that's the kind of commitment we need to have in the body of Christ. A friend even last night was sharing how they joined the church and was a member, you know, got in a new area, got involved with a lot of the people. They went away for about a month during the summer. When they came back, half the people were gone. Half the people decided they were going to go somewhere else. That's sad. You know, all their friends were gone. Divisions in the church again. People getting disgruntled. People getting angry. You know what makes us do that many, many times? Sometimes we need to divide from a gathering of believers because the teaching is not out of an open book. And it's very important not to go to a doctor who never opens his medical book. It's even more serious to go to a pastor teacher that never opens the ultimate spiritual medical book, the Word of God. So you need to leave when the Scripture is not open. That's a good reason to leave. But you know, believers many times divide relationships with other believers over things much more petty than that. You know the kind of love that's going to hold us together? I've got to be willing to give my life for y'all. 
I need to be willing to give my life for you. You know, I've never yet had a church, I've never yet heard of a church that had a lot of division, that was tearing one another apart, that loved one another like that. You see, you can have all kinds of disagreements, all kinds of different ideas. You can have a tremendous creative mix when you're committed to your wife, when you're committed to your husband enough to love them enough to give your life for them. And that's the way Jesus loves us this morning. He loves us that much. He gave us the gift of His life and His death for us. Now, what do you do now? I think sometimes we say, oh, yes, it happened many, many years ago. What's going on now? Look what Ephesians goes on to say. Why did He give His life for us? He had a goal in mind to make us holy. That means to be set apart. In old Jewish writing, there's the phrase, a motto or a vow that a married husband says to his wife right at the culminating time in the ceremony, the Jewish ceremony. There's a phrase in ancient Jewish literature that goes like this. She is now sanctified for me. That'd be a great phrase to add to our ceremony. A husband, when his wife commits her life to him, to say, she is now sanctified for me. What do we mean by that? You know, that happens in our wedding. When I was dating Mary, I've shared with some of you know, one of my best friends worked really hard to keep me from dating Mary. Tried to hook me up with every girl at the World of Life Island he could find. You know, all these real bombs. No, not really. That wasn't nice to say, was it? I take that back. That wasn't spirit-filled or controlled. really wasn't. Finally, Mary and I were able to date at a World of Life concert, and something really special happened that concert. You know, that, that wonder of wonders. You just know. Mary told me later, she just, something was really, anyway, it was, it was just a concert. But you know, from then out, we began to move towards the relationship of being set apart. I remember during our engagement period, Mary called me up one time, or I called her, and things were really out of sync on the phone. And we went through and we were talking, and finally it came out. She had gone to a party with another guy. And it really was just kind of a friendship thing. It was not really even a date, but there was this feeling of, I blew it. Now, if Mary does that now in our marriage, it's even a bigger blowing. If I call Mary up, I'm on a, on a trip up to World of Life and say, hey, I had a great time. I took so-and-so out on a date. That's not going to fly too well. You know why? Because when you get married, you're set apart. You're sanctified for each other. That's what Jesus is in the process of doing for us during this betrothal period. He is sanctifying us. He is setting us apart exclusively for Him. And He does that by cleansing us. Look what it says. He says He's making her holy, sanctifying us, and setting us apart. He does that by cleansing us with water, by the washing with water through the Word, because His goal is to present her to Himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but set apart and blameless. What Jesus is saying is that during this betrothal period, He is giving us the gift of being clean. Titus 3.5 says, By the washing of regeneration, which is done by the Spirit. Now, it uses a verb in Ephesians 5 that means, in one sense, having been washed. In one sense, the moment that you believed, 
Jesus gave you a spiritual moral bath, and by the power of the Spirit coming into your life, because He is the living water that comes in and fills you and cleans you from Christ's perspective, because time isn't a factor for Him, He can look at your life, He sees past, present, and future, and He sees everything accomplished. He can see you on the wedding day. He sees you pure because He's outside of this thing called time. So He can declare you my virgin, pure, holy bride. You need to believe that. We call that justification. We call that being declared righteous by the fiat, by the command of an almighty God who paid the just price for our sins on Calvary. Jesus took our penalty. He took our sin upon himself. So we are declared not guilty. We're clean. But the Bible also talks about a process of becoming clean, of becoming forgiven. And that's what we're living out now. And there's tension in that. But it's what the Holy Spirit is doing. The process of becoming godly. The process of becoming holy. So our bridegroom has those gifts for us. He gives us the gift of his love, which expresses itself in the gift of his life offered for us on Calvary, which culminates in the resurrected life of Christ in a continual lifetime of making us holy, of preparing us for the great wedding. Those are the gifts that our bridegroom gives us. What about us? What about the bride? Paul talks about the Corinthians past. It talks about homosexuals. It talks about perverts of other kinds. It talks about thieves. It talks about connivers. It talks about adulterous people. Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, this is what some of you were. This is your past. You know, incredibly, that's my past. And that's your past. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We walk out and all the self-righteous people in the world gasp and say, how could he ever get hooked up with that? How could he ever marry that? What about this? What about that? What about that? And they look at the God who's going to perform the wedding, God, the ultimate judge of all the universe, and the ultimate judge of the universe, and they scream at him, how could you ever let your son get hooked up with that? How could you make this whole thing a farce? How could you make yourself a, a laughingstock? How could you ruin morality? And God the Father says, you don't understand. Because the bridegroom sits in front of the church. And all he needs to do, because his bride is dressed in white, she has a sordid past. By her own life, she could never wear that dress. But she wears a white dress. Revelation says that it's radiant. It's glorious white. And all the world says it isn't fair. And all the world says that's unjust. And all the bridegroom does is as his bride begins to walk towards him, he just holds up his hand. And the nail prints scream out a message. She's clean. She's pure. She's mine. Because she's forgiven. Brothers and sisters, that's the greatest story ever told. And you've all got to understand that because it'll just totally change your life. You know, to be honest with you, in my flesh, 
as I thought about what I preached to you about this week. It's hard to believe it. I look at you and you look at me. I know problems in your life. I know struggles. I know inconsistencies. But you know what? We're all going to go to a wedding. We're all going to a wedding. And Jesus Christ is going to get all of His buddies, their angelic buddies, and they're going to play the most beautiful instruments you've ever heard. And He's going to come and get you. He's going to come to your home. And He's going to take you to be with Him. And you're going to eat the marriage supper of the Lamb according to Revelation 19 and Revelation 21. And the Son of Glory is going to unite with you in intimacy forever and ever and ever. That's where we're going. We're going to a wedding because we're the bride. 